I've got a 16-year-old. She attends high school. I can't imagine putting her in, in the woods and hiding her and paying a smuggler to send her to another country because I was afraid that she was going to die or be killed or be ransomed or be held hostage. I mean, it's just unthinkable. And and just to hear that story from, from someone and, and be invited into a home, like you said, a, a, a meager pr- proportion uh, was was quite an experience, one of the, an experience that I'll never forget. And I, hey, everybody, welcome to the 3880 podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hager. And on this podcast, we engage with people who are doing extraordinary things all around the world and hope to help them tackle the issues, challenges, and tensions that they face. Our hope in each episode is to inform you and to provide you real, practical ways for you to take some action steps towards some of these challenges, big or small. You can follow along by subscribing to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Music. And if you want to get in touch with me or any of the guests on the show, check out the show notes for our email addresses or follow me on Twitter where my handle is at 3880WV. Thanks for joining in, and we really hope you're enjoying learning, growing, and being challenged to make a difference alongside of us globally. Um, yeah, let's t- let's talk about our trip. So you organized and orchestrated a 12-day tour slash, uh, I'll call it working tour, I guess. we I was tired every day, <laughs> which is a good <laughs> thing. Uh, we, Chad, Chad Cobb and I calculated we were on, we had 10 different airplane flights and I think two to four train rides to get to some of these locations. But uh, we started our, our journey in Amsterdam. And I know that you, obviously you've lived there. You talked about your, your family moving there to be a part of the church plant to support what was going on there. Um, we had a, we had a great experience there. And I guess, as you mentioned, the, the four stages of four, four, four ways that the refugees kind of go through this system, you would classify Amsterdam as that fourth category of a place where they can land and and try to create a new life. Yes. Yeah, I would say that. I would say that uh, in any generalization like that, you're going to have people that are stage one. We've met stage one people in Amsterdam. They were a couple of weeks in Europe and they were um, just fighting for their very lives. Uh, you're going to find stage three and four people down in, in Lesbos in Greece because they haven't been able to make their way out of uh, Greece at this point. So those are generalizations, but yes. Um, and to say that, there's different ways of ministering all along. And part of the reason for just putting them in those categories, is, as we experienced and we'll talk about throughout our trip uh, or throughout our conversation here, was there were different ways of meeting needs uh, along that refugee highway. Yeah, there was uh, a couple of highlights for me, I think, from Amsterdam. Uh, there were two things that, that stand out. One is the, uh, the cafe that's connected to the, uh, the facility there, the housing, the, the refugee camp, as I'll call it. Um, and you described that very, very well. It's, it's shipping containers or you know, something like that, some type of shipping container that have been retrofitted to be housing and families can stay together. And the camp was was very sterile feeling, very dry, very white. Um, but, but, you know, the basic needs are met there. Folks can, can come in and out. They can live together there. They can get a meal. They can, uh, you know, they can be a part of society for the most part. The cafe, uh, gives you guys a very unique opportunity to, to build relationships. Tell me a little bit more about the, the cafe there. 
So the cafe, uh, like most of um, the places we went in Europe and the places ministering to refugees, the government has been overwhelmed with the sheer number of those seeking asylum. And so in each place along the way, the non-governmental organizations, NGOs, or we call them, we call them in the States, nonprofits, right. um, they come alongside and work together with the government. So uh, Cafe 5, as it's called, uh, was set up and designed to be able to give refugees who have been granted asylum or who are near grant being granted asylum a, a way to work, a way to earn some money, a way to have a new skill set. Uh, again, most of the people that are serving in the cafe, whether it's as a barista or um, maybe they were working on tailoring, they have a tailoring business run out of there. Uh, whatever it was, many of them are overqualified for the work they're right. doing, right. but they have to start from scratch. Uh, in that. And so Cafe 5 is a mix of the refugee community being able to apply business skills and uh, maybe some of their trade together with the local community who can come in and take advantage of uh, their tra the training and the services that are being provided by the refugees. So it's really a win-win. And so the opportunity to do ministry there is a little bit of a challenge, as as we learned during the trip that that the government and the organizations that are managing the camps really feel like, um, well, they're they're very wary of of folks coming in, um, and the the term that I heard used was taking advantage of people who are in vulnerable situations. So, so how do you guys do? How do your uh, the missionaries that are there in Amsterdam, what's their approach to, to ministry there? In, um, let, let's take, for example, uh, the camp that is uh, immediately connected to Cafe 5. Those are called closed camps, which means the public is not allowed there. You have to have identification and or a purpose for being in the camp. And as you've mentioned, um, Jason, the reason for that was that people wouldn't be preying off highly vulnerable people, not just from a spiritual or religious standpoint, but there's a lot of other things that are going on along the refugee highway, Right. whether that is trying to recruit back into mm -hmm. uh, more of a jihadist militant mindset that could be for the... Uh, sex slave trade yep. it could be exploiting minors and women and so that's the purpose for it what we found uh there's been many ways that we've uh gained access uh because we have been invited virtually into all the closed camps where we've ministered uh and it's usually through relationship many of the people that are in amsterdam for example that are in the camp they now have uh, their basic needs met. They had food, they had clothes, they had covering over their head. And granted, it was meager and it wasn't much, but they had those things covered. What they didn't have is they didn't have somebody to share their story with. They didn't have somebody to talk to. They didn't have somebody who would just love on them and befriend them. 
so we've done everything from offering uh, cultural enrichment days where we'll take refugees out into the city and show them the history and the culture of the Netherlands. Uh, we've done things where we've invited them into events just for the purpose of giving them an opportunity to get away from these tight, enclosed, confined areas to be able to enjoy conversation, to enjoy games, to enjoy sports, just to enjoy, um, uh, just to feel yeah, like they're feel like they're living again and have community around them. I think that's one thing that I noticed is that they feel isolated, they feel alone, and just to just to share a conversation over a cup of coffee was, you know, sometimes maybe the highlight of their of their day of their week. Well, as you witnessed there in each of the places that we were at, most of the cultures that they're coming from, they'd be considered more warm culture, mm-hmm. uh, warm climate cultures, which means time isn't as important to them as relationship is. Right. And so in each of those places, a high value on family, a high value on friends, and a high value on any new relationships. And so we were overwhelmingly greeted <laughs> in each of the places uh, just because we took an interest uh, to share the love of God with them. Yeah. My second highlight, I think, from Amsterdam, and there were, um, you know, I could say all of it was a highlight, but the two things that, that stand out, the second one um, was the time we spent at Steckost. Maybe um, maybe describe what's happening there, what that facility is, and uh, how Patricia and her team are are ministering there. Yeah, Steckost, um, it's a little bit of a governmental experiment. It's, uh, it's also containers. Uh, and with Dutch and German engineering, you see these things, and they stack these trucking containers up, and, and uh, they put facades on them. Uh, they put windows in them. They put staircases to them. They run plumbing. It's absolutely amazing. And but, I would say I've seen worse housing. I mean, I, I'm and not that I would want to live in a container, but you know, knowing the perspective of of what they're coming from, but finding a place. I mean, it's it's pretty ingenious to see these camps. Well, as you saw all along the the refugee highway at the landing spot in Lesvos, it was extremely meager. Right. Maybe a mat to sleep on in the open air. Yeah. Uh, all the way through some of these more uh, finished off uh, containers. However, uh, the population in each one of those is usually a little higher than most of us yeah. uh, would of would course. welcome. But of course. But Steckost is an experiment um, a little bit. They've seen success with it, and that is they're mixing university students with the younger uh, refugees who have been granted asylum. And so they're putting them not necessarily in the same container, but in the same housing complex. And so Steckost is that. It's on the east side of the center um, of Amsterdam. And it's close to where one of our missionary families lives. And it's opened a door of opportunity to minister both to uh, the young Dutch who are studying, but also to reach out to the refugees. And because of just years of uh, building favor, we've had the opportunity to provide events there. For example, the night uh, that you and Chad and I were there, 
uh, we got to advertise uh, a week in advance that there was going to be a conversation about love and faith. And they were able to put flyers up around. And if you remember, there was maybe six or seven that showed up uh, on time is yeah. relative when you're dealing with young people and you're dealing with people <laughs> sure. uh, f- from non-time oriented cultures. But by the end of the time, I would say there were between 20 and 25 people who had mm-hmm. made their way in and had got had some portion of hearing um, a Jesus story. And uh, yeah, what was it like for you to, uh, I, I set you up in advance yeah, you did. Uh, to be able to share uh, a Jesus story, uh, one of the gospel stories. What was it like for you to be sharing the story of the prodigal it son? Was, uh, it was a great experience. I, um, you know, coming into it, I have a young life background as we've discussed and I thought, you know, let's break the ice with a game. So if you're listening to this and you've been to Young Life Club, you you know what I'm talking about. It wasn't quite a Young Life Club, but but it was close. Um, and I think that what I realized was that regardless of what you believe or what uh, what what religion you claim as your own, uh, the the culture of the people that were there were very open to hearing a story and talking about it. And I guess when I say talking about it, I mean debating fiercely. <laughs> um, Luckily for me, I, I've had a little bit of experience with the Arab culture and and some of the some of the other uh, cultures that were represented, and and that's just part of who they are. And it, I didn't find it really intimidating per se, but it is it is kind of a, a faith check for a lot of people that that might find themselves in that situation um, to to sit down and then have to I won't say argue, but I'll say debate uh, debate the story and 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 talk about every nuance of the story with questions that are just getting peppered, uh, from folks. And, you know, we had a wonderful gentleman from Jerusalem who was translating and he, uh, is a follower of Christ. And I looked at his Bible and his Bible is just like, I mean, notes and cards and (laughs) post-its and uh, it was so, you know, and it was, uh, it was in Arabic and, uh, I just looked at him and as he was translating, I could see the passion in his eyes and he's used to that kind of debate culture. And it really was, it was a magical experience for me. I really felt like the Holy Spirit was, was there with us. Um, and I think afterwards having conversations with a couple of the students, just kind of one-on-one, uh, one I, I know was, was from, from Amsterdam. He had kind of fallen out of, uh, religion. His parents, uh, didn't really have a, a, pr- a preference uh, as to what he, what he believes or what they believe. And he was really asking some great questions about Jesus and about why and about how. Um, and I think, uh, as I've heard uh, from Patricia, a couple of emails that he's continuing to explore that. And I think what a great opportunity to to have a relational ministry in an area where you can impact so many people. Um, and again, it was just, uh, it was a, it was a great experience for me. One of the things that's been, uh, strategic for our teams that are overseas is when the short-term teams come in and the short-term team can be two to four people, kind of like yeah. us. Uh, when they come in, they create an energy and a, can build a little bit of a critical mass around an event that carries them over 
for weeks and months forward, giving the workers there the opportunity to engage more deeply on spiritual conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, Jason, there's even ongoing Bible studies now yep. uh, as a result of, of our time there. I think you highlight some a couple of things in, in what you were saying as well that we found all across the refugee highway. And, and that is most of the people that we're talking with are very spiritually minded. Mm-hmm. It's a different, it, it is a different apologetic um, when somebody is, you're not starting with the existence of God and, and the formation of the world and humanity as we know it. And is there a literal heaven and hell? You're really talking, you're starting with there's a respect and an honor for God. And there's a an embracing um, of spiritual conversation. And so it's such a joy uh, to and, and a little bit of a, uh, overwhelming surprise that we can have these kinds of gospel conversations so readily that yep. the 20 or so people that were in there included a gal who said she was an atheist. She's mm-hmm. Syrian and she's an atheist and she sat there the whole time. Yeah. And, and she and was, wanted to be involved was in the dialogue. Yeah. She was engaged in the conversation <laughs> and, and very vocal about her, her thoughts. And, but, but the, the willingness and open openness to share that and to stay there the whole time to me was, was a testament to the respect that I think those students have. Um, you know, maybe because it's, we're older than them or, or whatever it was, but I, I was really impressed. And, and even a few of the Muslim students that were there, we had great conversations with them afterwards and, and very, produ- you know, what I would call a, a positive, productive conversation. And, and I, I'm a, I'm a believer in kind of the young life model of let's, let's plant the seed and let's, let's move someone in their faith as best we can and be a part of that, uh, sharing of the gospel. And, you know, we, we take them from a, you know, maybe a minus five to a one, uh, and then they continue to explore and someone else gets involved in their life and they continue to come to, to Steckos for a Bible study or just for the pizza, but they continue to climb that ladder. And at some point, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's my hope and prayer that, that they become a follower, but, but to have those conversations and for them to be open was really a surprise to me. You you uh, were reading my mind on the Ingle scale, scale there yeah. a little bit <laughs> that, you know, the Ingle scale is just a way of, for those that aren't as familiar, it's just a way of assessing where somebody at in their spiritual interest and in their spiritual journey. And if zero is at a point of conversion and plus one to plus five is um, progress that they've made as a follower and believer in Christ. Mm-hmm. Then there's, depending on whose scale you read, anywhere from a minus eight, minus 10, or minus 12, um, those are people that are at different degrees far from God. Right. And uh, I think you really, what you're saying there is what we found all along the refugee highway is rather than saying our humanitarian aid is not of help, it could have been just through one quick moment of asking to pray for them or telling them you're a Jesus follower or hugging and smiling on them, move them from a minus eight far from God to a minus seven. And we spend all of our time hoping for that minus one to zero conversion to plus one early followership. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is a lot of our work takes people from somewhere in the minus category uh, uh, closer to the minus one to zero. And so if we're helping make progress, man, hallelujah. And uh, probably towards the end, when we talk about Lesbos a little bit, we'll hear of a uh, of a a little bit more of the minus one to zero. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so, <laughs> so our next stop was uh, was Cologne, Germany, where we had the chance to meet uh, a number of wonderful people, uh, some locals there who were part of a church plant. Martin, the the college uh, professor, who was also the pastor of the church. Uh, Matteo, his wife, um, Michael and Nia, uh, all um, really, really just bought into this idea of kind of going into the harvest and reaching refugees. And again, the mindset of let's try to have a relationship. Let's be someone they can talk to. Let's, let's go, you know, let's, let's have a relational conversation and that turns into opportunities to, to share the love of Christ. So um, thoughts on Cologne, how did it get started? What's happening there? Yeah. Cologne got started, um, through a, a summer project of university students, we had actually started uh, two years prior. And the first year we were up in Stockholm, uh, Sweden, for three and a half weeks. The next year we went and joined another organization uh, because we'd heard of the success that they'd have um, in Hamburg, Germany. And this was our, our third year in. So this would be two summers ago now was our third year in. And it was during that time that God really grabbed a hold of, uh, a couple of the students, uh, who were thinking they might want to be doing, uh, cross cultural ministry. And so, uh, God grabbed a hold of their life during that summer and directed them to joining up with the church plant that had started 15 years ago there, but with a different focus rather than university students, their focus would be on the, those coming through on the refugee highway. Mm-hmm. And so um, it really started just from summer teams going out, God grabbing hold of hearts. And right now there's four who have made the permanent move there. There's one in the support raising mode and there's eight others who are in process, because they're still finishing university workup, right. that in the next one to two years will be readily available and eagerly pursuing the opportunity to serve, whether it's there in Cologne or somewhere else, uh, reaching refugees that are coming into Europe. So, Yeah, the, the a couple of things that stand out from our, again, we had a short amount of time in each place, but we made, we took full advantage for sure. Um, where was the time where we went to the park and the park is uh, situated next to a lot of the, the refugee housing. And we just, we just sat down beside people and, and just started talking. And I will, I will be the first to admit that, uh, that's way outside of my comfort zone, but, um, the stories that we heard and their willingness to just share stories of, of how they got uh, into the country and, and sort of their path in again, a lot of them are heartbreaking, but, um, it was just, it was an amazing experience, um, to, to sit down in a park. And then most of them in Germany obviously speak German. 
So having those conversations with them and then Mateo or Michael or Nia translating their stories and just asking a few questions and, and really just kind of listening um, was a, was a very unique opportunity. And, you know, I, their goal was to, is to share Christ with, with these people. And some of them were very, very willing to talk about it. And some of them were, were very closed off. Um, but we had, we had all those experiences. Um, I, uh, was spending some time praying a little bit. Um, and a guy started shooting basketball there in the park and I had a chance to go up and, and just shoot some hoops with him and start a very quick dialogue of, of his story. And just to, to do that was, uh, was amazing. Spoke very little English, but you know, we, we, we were able to have a, a, a really interesting conversation. I think leading into the trip, uh, as, uh, you and Chad and I were talking, I was trying to frame it as realistically as I could, that we would be uh, uh, all along this uh, highway, there'd be specific things that we'd be going after. Right. And some of it was, we're going to be out in the gospel. I mean, we're yeah. going to be at the grassroots level. Yeah. There are initiative things that we do. Um, is that the most effective or the only tool? Absolutely not. But in the absence of having uh, relationships, persons of peace, mm-hmm. we'll talk about uh, one of the families we sat down with who's really a person of peace yeah. and what it means to be a person of peace in gospeling. But um, we talked about it. The, I think the word you guys used was granular. Uh, you were uh, pleasantly surprised and excited how granular it was that we're just out in the street. It doesn't mean we didn't do events. Amsterdam was a little bit of an event, but it opened the door for these direct conversations. And when we talk about Thessaloniki and Lesbos, it was humanitarian service, but it opened the doors for these gospeling conversations. But all along the way, people were hearing the gospel, and our goal was to bridge conversation and service into the gospel. And I think the Lord really opened those doors in countless ways. Even people that were serving us food <laughs> or people that we were running into as part of our cultural enrichment and going on parts of tours, we were constantly just looking for ways to turn a conversation into a spiritual one if that's where they wanted to go and where they were interested. And I think so. that's a lo- it's a lost art um, possibly for the, the church, you know, the church culture in America, I th- you know, and I'm not, I don't want to disparage any anybody or any anyone but I, I do think that we are you know we're not challenged in our faith like that as much possibly as um, maybe in the past uh, and I don't I don't know why that is and and it's just a product of culture possibly or you know not not finding ways to to engage in that but I, I was definitely refreshed with the you know with with the charge of going out and just starting conversations with people um, in a, in a, in a way that, Hey, we want to share Christ. We want to share this love with you. We want to share the story of the gospel. Um, and I, I did appreciate the fact that, that that was the, the, the mindset of, of just about every conversation. Well, I would say that one of the, sorry it's for okay. the phone ringing in the hey, background, everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're all working here. <laughs> this is a real live <laughs> Uh, conversation going on. Just, just so you know, I'm really alive. No, uh, 
Yeah, you know, I, a couple of points or a couple of thoughts out of that, and then maybe a quick story. One is, I, I just think um, what really captured my heart years ago was, I, I, as a part of what's now the broader Great Commission movement and many other movements, but I just saw people who read God's Word with a heart to obey it. I saw people who were out taking responsibility for sharing their faith and and then they were gathering together with others um, who had a like mind. And when I stepped into Europe in uh, 2003 and we gathered together with about 25 missionary and national pastors, we kind of had that gut check of what did we buy into and why are we doing what we're doing and what is it we want to be about? And it was really those three things. If there's anything we can pass on. Uh, to uh, a new believer, to somebody who, um, yeah, wants to follow Christ. It's just, can you hear from God? And are you hearing from God? And are you willing to do what he asks? And do you see that he can speak to you, but also through you? And are you out sharing your faith? Uh, are you proclaiming the goodness of God wherever you're at and learning how to do that in a comfortable, yep. unforced, natural way. And then, hey, we all need one another to make that happen. And yep. So so it, it really was granular. It was grassroots. Um, I mentioned the idea of a person of peace, and I'll talk about that again later. But um, through the summer projects uh, two years ago, they met one of the U-City guys. And if you remember, we sat down, and it is – uh, not uncommon to have an entire multi-course uh, <laughs> feast put in front of you to the point where uh, I, I can't even begin to fathom yeah. eating everything that's being put in front yeah. of me. And uh, it was, was through. Uh, yeah, that go was. Ahead. That was definitely that was definitely the second highlight. But but yeah, keep keep going. Well, what I was going to say is that, you know, it, the culture is a very um, uh, relational culture. It's a very giving culture. Here, here we are sitting with a young Yasidi couple, newlyweds, only by a few months, um, and they open up their home. Right. They didn't even have enough resources to afford furniture, right. so we're sitting on probably their bed mattresses. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> scattered all over the floor, and they just bring out course after course of food to eat and to share with us and to communicate the respect and the honor. And and uh, as a side note, I definitely want to hear your reflection on the time as we got to go through the gospel yet again um, with them. But um, a side note, the missionary families that were there, they uh, a, f a few months before, they had earned such a place of trust and respect that they were the only Nanya cities that were invited to their wedding, and there were over 700 cities at that. And we wedding. got to see some great video of that. We did. <laughs> that was. Uh, I tried to explain to my wife. Yeah. Yes, they love to dance for hours and, and hours they, and hours. <laughs> And hours, and they have certain sounds and celebration that they make that uh, you wouldn't normally hear out on the streets in a large city. But uh, yeah, it was just uh, 
uh, it's a very honoring and respectful culture. And so I think we, we were sitting at the home of a person of peace who is introducing our missionary team to countless others that their life touches. And there we were, the recipients of being blessed by that. And with them sitting there listening with great eagerness and, and desire to hear our hearts and what, you know, the story that God had given us. That, to me, that's just, that's precious. And that is, uh, that was one example of countless times that that's happened over the last several years as we've been ministering to those coming from uh, the refugees coming from the Middle East, Near East, and North Africa. And what I love about what was your yeah what I love about uh, that's that that experience is uh, the fact that their efforts in the harvest paid off with this relationship. And so Talal, who is the gentleman we're talking about, uh, in his early twenties, I believe it was, newly married. Uh, had a relation, you know, it started to establish a relationship with, uh, with Mateo and, uh, and Michael and invited us all over for dinner and his wife prepared an amazing feast is, is probably putting it lightly. I've never, I don't think I've ever been that full and I, there was so much food left over. I felt really bad, but, but just to, (laughs) just for him to, to take that next step and be open and willing to share his experience. And, and I guess maybe as an aside on the story, the, the Yazidi faith, uh, I had never really even heard of (laughs) and, and, uh, you know, probably don't want to, we won't go into it now, but just the, the, you know, what they believe and, and the, the, the premise of their faith, most of the generation, you know, his generation, Talal's generation doesn't really under, I don't think they really understand the faith that, that, that they've been, taught, but that's because that's what they were taught. That's what they, uh, they associate to. Um, but, but that night of him sharing his journey at 17, I think it was, they were, he was hiding in the woods. He had, he had fled, uh, was put on a boat, was, uh, smuggled across the water, was stuffed into a van with 20, 30, 40. I don't remember what the total number is. I've got, I've got the story, uh, on audio, which I'll, I'll, I'll publish as well at some point with permission, but, um, but just to hear him talk about how, how hard that was and what a challenge that, especially as, I mean, I've got a 16 year old, she attends high school. I can't imagine putting her in, in the woods and hiding her and paying a smuggler to send her to another country because I was afraid that she was going to die or be killed or be ransomed or be held hostage. I mean, it's just unthinkable. And, and just to hear that story from, from someone and, and be invited into a home, like you said, uh, of, of meager proportion, uh, was, was quite an experience, one of the, an experience that I'll never forget. And I think, you know, you shared your story that night, kind of your journey of faith, uh, which I, I can only imagine had a fairly profound impact and, he started asking questions. And, and again, those guys have been working with Talal and, and meeting with him regularly. And I think beginning to, to share some scripture with him. And it sounds like that he's responding. And, you know, what, uh, what else could you ask for? Yeah, just on an encouraging note as well, um, Mateo, who turned the missionary, he turned 30 uh, after we left. Yep. Uh, a few days later, and Talal and his wife, uh, and his newlywed wife, they they were there at their 
uh, at the 30th at the big, birthday at party. The big surprise party. <laughs> at the big surprise party. Yeah, which is really interesting. They've only lived there in Cologne since February. I was there in June uh, as a part of the university students outreach last summer and they had a uh, they had their firstborn uh, born during that time and they had a neighborhood and refugee party they had about 30 people come from that they'd only been there four months oh, and this one had about 30 people there and they've been there now eight months and so um, just the influence of of being available in the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that was highlighted even in what you were saying there is um, most young people, and I would say this is true across the board, this is unofficial stats, but I would say 90% of the uh, people that are uh, migrating into uh Europe uh, coming in as refugees, somewhere in the 90% are probably more cultural in their orientation to their faith and religion rather than devout or, as some of us know, extremists. And so because of that, I think this is the first time they're a little bit disenfranchised. Their, Their culture is not just their religious system, but it's their judicial, their educational, their political, their... Um, uh, military, so it's all encompassing. Their their family system, the the media system, everything is wrapped up in their culture. That's all they know. And so now, for the first time, their culture is extremely somewhere. Someone in that process, whether it's the military or the political party or the religious party, has really let them down, and that's the reason that they're migrating. Because of that, uh, it's allowed them to be open to questions that maybe they couldn't ask yeah. under their uh, their prior living conditions. And so, um, yeah, they're 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 asking questions for the first time. So, and, and even Talel and and his wife are examples of that. That they really want to engage in spiritual conversations, even though they're probably still a minus two three or four (laughs) on our scale of things but they've moved along so and and i think you know speaking of the culture and and i i don't know that i spent a lot of time in africa and uh, and in europe as well and i've i don't know that i have seen or felt you know the the cultural mindset of of an anti-christian um, culture and I, I, you know, I experienced some of that with people that we talked to. You know, some people uh, were raised thinking that you know Christians were wanting to kill them and they hated them, and it was just such. It was so disappointing, I think, to hear that that was part of the part of the culture. And and yeah, I mean, this experience with Talal was was really really amazing for me. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to part two of the Refugee Highway. And in part three, Joe, Chad, and I visit the Greek island of Lesbos. This was a beautiful Greek island, just a stone's throw away from the border of Turkey, where refugees continue to pour in by the thousands. We were able to tour the highly controversial Camp Moria, where tens of thousands of refugees live in a space designed for, for just a few thousand people. So you can listen to our experience and learn ways that you can make a difference. So make sure you tune in to the 3880 podcast on Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.